Haskell is a purely functional programming language. Leonard Augustsson is a Swedish computer scientist who is heavily involved with Haskell and has also authored the Cayenne programming language. Leonard, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Jeff. What makes Haskell a unique language? I think it's the only pure programming language with pure in the technical sense that there are no side effects. Uh, that is actually widely used. I mean, there are a few others like Clean, but uh, Haskell actually has a fair number of users. And being pure takes some getting used to because you can't get away with the the usual things that you do in other programming languages where you your can have uncontrolled effects everywhere. When people learn Haskell, they often describe it as a novel experience, um, and it makes the programmer think in different ways. Why is this? So I think the, the purity is one thing, because you, you're forced to uh, sort of keep track of where you're going to do, say, reading a file or something like that. You can't just insert that randomly, and normally in your program language you or you, when you write a program you can insert these kind of things wherever you want and nothing keeps track of them and in Haskell you're forced to keep IO and other effects if you have updatable variables and so on you have to have them tracked so that's that's one thing I think that's the probably the biggest thing to get used to uh, but Haskell is also lazy which uh, um, I mean, it's a bit awkward if you're used to strict evaluation. I think it's quite nice. It has drawbacks and it has advantages. Could, um, could you define lazy evaluation versus strict evaluation? So in a lazy programming language, uh, nothing is evaluated until you absolutely need it. So if you're calling a function with, say, it has two arguments and... Uh, you don't evaluate the arguments before you call the function. You call the function, and if the function decides that it's only going to use the first argument, then the first argument is evaluated, but not the second. So the the consequences of this is that you can write things like control structures as regular functions. So if you imagine writing an if function, so it takes a Boolean and two uh, values to then and the else branch, you don't really want both the then and the else branch to be evaluated. You want to only do the one that the Boolean picks out. And if you have a strict programming language function with three arguments, you will evaluate the three arguments before you call the function. In Haskell, you will evaluate, will evaluate the argument that you need sort of on demand when the function needs it. So we'll get more into the particulars of Haskell, um, but I'd like to stay on the surface level for a little bit longer. Haskell programs tend to be short, fast, and safe, and these are very appealing features to a programmer. Why does the language encourage the programmer to structure programs in a way that is short, fast, and safe? So I think it's short because Haskell encourages you to use uh, reuse bits of code that you already have. It's easy to write very general code. So 
Whereas in, say, something like Java, if you want to make something generic, you have to go jump through some extra hoops and to, to ensure that you make a generic class or function or whatever. In Haskell, everything is automatically as general as possible. So you, there's no extra to burden on you to make something generic that just happens by default. So that makes it easy to make reusable components easier um, and also the type system helps you stick together these components in a way that that works nicely so fast well i mean that depends on the implementation uh, if something's going to be fast or not uh, there has been a lot of work going into the glasgow haskell compiler that most people use so i i don't think there's something unique about Haskell that makes it extra fast. On the contrary, something like lazy evaluation is actually a bit difficult to compile into fast code. Being strongly typed helps, though, for to make uh, fast code because it means certain runtime checks don't have to be made. You, you can never add an integer and a string or something. You don't have to check for that. The type system has ensured that at compile time. So and the third one was safe. Safe, yes. Yes. So I think uh, that's um, two things. The type system makes sure that you don't uh, plug things together in bad ways. And the other thing is that you are encouraged to operate on sort of bulk data structure. You don't have an array where you step an index through. You're encouraged to instead write functions that operate on the whole array at once, which means all these kind of indexing errors, out of bounds and so on, those can't happen if you do use bulk operations. Mm, interesting. So uh, as you mentioned, the foundation of Haskell is in many ways it's strong static type safety and inference system. Why is the type system of Haskell so unique and so important? So it has its roots in uh, the uh, ML, which later became standard ML type system. So it's very similar to the M SML type system or the OCaml type system. But there was uh, a new invention in the Haskell type system that involves the, what in Haskell is called type classes, which... Um, it's not really like classes in an object-oriented sense. A type class in Haskell is more like an interface in something like Java. And uh, the, uh, there was sort of a lot of work going into these type classes and make them work smoothly together with the type inference. So you, don't, you have to write out just a minimum of type signatures in your code to help the compiler along. It usually figures out everything regarding types. So I think I mean, the unique bit of Haskell compared to something like OCaml is really the type classes. And how does this type system lead to more safety than imperative languages like Java or Python or C? So if you just use it in the simplest possible way, it helps you a little, but maybe not so much. But once you get used to it, you learn how to encode things in the, as types. So say that you 
let me take a very trivial example that you could do in any programming language, but you probably won't. Say that you have, you're counting apples and oranges. You might use an integer for each of them. In Haskell, you're very much encouraged to make a new type, one for apples and one for oranges. It's very easy to make a new type and have it have all the arithmetic operations and so on. And then once you have these two types, you can't accidentally add apples and oranges because that will be a type error. So this is a trivial example. A much more advanced example is if you have uh, making, say, a balanced tree, a red-black tree, say you are, have certain invariants there that there should be <clears throat> the, the red and the black nodes should alternate in a certain way, way in the tree to maintain balance. You can actually encode that in the type system of Haskell. So once you've done that, if you write some new piece of code involving your, your red-black trees, uh, you, you're sure that the balance will be maintained because if you write something that where it isn't, then that would be a type error. As you've mentioned already, Haskell is a purely functional language. What does it mean to be purely functional? So you can view it in two ways. So the, the one way is to say, okay, uh, there are no effects in, in has, hidden effects in Haskell, no side effects. So a function of type uh, takes an integer, returns an integer. You know that will not do any I.O. Because the type says it takes an integer, gives an integer. It can't do anything, can't read any global variables, can't modify any global variables, can't read any files, anything like that. But if you describe it like that, it sounds like, uh, well, can a program actually do anything at all? <laughs> because you have, the, you have to do something with some I.O. Otherwise, you, the program is kind of pointless to run. So there is a, a type sort of in, in Haskell that sort of indicates that you're doing I.O. So a function that, say, takes an integer, returns an integer, but could also do some IO, it has type int uh, arrow, IO int, where sort of arrow means goes from the one type to the other type. And the IO there indicates that well, it does um, some IO. So I said one, one way of viewing it was that no side effects happen. The other way that I like to tell people is that a Haskell program you can do anything you like. It's just like programming in C or Java or something. There are no restrictions on what you can do. You can do whatever you like. But if you do things that are effectful, global variables, IO, and so on, it will show up in your types. So the types of your program, when you write it in Haskell, will not correspond directly to the types that you would have in, say, Java. Because the types will tell you a lot more about what's going on. But presumably, so you, I mean, you've talked about this this uh, this distinction that Haskell makes about what aspects of the program can read or write files or communicate over the network, um, and what I'm kind of not clear about is like, you know, you you have these things like I/O ints, 
um, that designate, you know, if you're if you're making an I/O operation. But couldn't you conceivably build abstractions on top of those that hide the fact that you're doing stateful operations like I/O? You can you can do things. So so if you have something of type I/O int. You can put this in a list. You can do things to the, or an array or whatever. You can do all all the usual things you can do to other values. But no I/O happens just because you have something of type I/O int. So it's sort of like there's a magic top level in Haskell. Sort of, there's main where execution starts, and main has type uh, I/O unit. Doesn't return anything, so but it does I/O, and it's only when sort of an I don't know how to describe it, when an I/O an I/O value sort of comes in contact with main that the I/O actually happens. So it's perfectly fine to do all kinds of things, store your I/O values in data structure, whatever. No I/O happens there. So if you try to hide the I/O, you have to somehow nothing will happen. It's not until you unpack it again and make the I.O. thing actually in contact with the top level that the I.O. happens. So one, another, yet another way of uh, interpreting what, what Haskell does, that it's not actually what happens at runtime, but uh, that might be a sort of help illustrate what's going on. If you think of I.O., something of type I.O., they are like recipes on how to do things. So an IO int is a recipe that says what kind of IO operations to do to produce an integer or uh, say a string to IO unit, which is the type to write on the console. Uh, it has, it takes a string and it's some kind of recipe that describes what IO operations to do to write this on the console. And these recipes, they don't do anything. They I mean, you can do put these recipes in data structures or whatever. And the, the main program, sort of the thing that's outside of Haskell, it, you give it one of these recipes and it will sort of take the recipe and follow the instructions in it. Okay, now I'm supposed to output something. Then I read this file. Then I do something to that. Then I put that there. So that's one way of thinking of, what what this IO type is. Got it. Haskell has monads. And I recently did an interview with somebody who works on Racket, and I asked him to define monad, and he didn't want to. And I was kind of surprised by this <laughs> because he's he's like a professor of computer science. He teaches programming languages and and it sounded like monad was just such a loaded term that he didn't want to even go near it uh you know extemporaneously so i don't know out of curiosity who was it matthew flat okay yeah um yeah so um i'd prefer not to define monad either (laughs) but 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 but, uh, i could jeez do you want to talk about like abortion or stem cell research (laughs) or like the nature of god or something I can I can define. It. I mean, it it uh, doing it on audio only is kind of painful. But so a monad is 
three things. You have to have some kind of type constructor. So IO is an example of this. List is another example of this. And then you have two operations um, that have to exist. So one is sort of injects a value into the monad without doing anything. There's no, so if you have an IO, there will be no IO going on. So that operation is called return in Haskell. It's not a great name. So return five can be of type IO int. And it's an IO int that doesn't actually involve any IO. It's just five. And then there is another operation called bind written greater than greater than equal sign in Haskell. So it takes something that is in the monad, like an IO int, and then it takes a function that will wants to do something to the int that's inside, and it will return a new IO of some other type. Say that it's, it's uh, type is int arrow IO bool. So now you can give it an IO int, and the bind will then sort of get the value that's inside the IO int. Apply this function that you gave it, and you that will take the int, give you an IO bool, and that IO bool is the final result. So those, so we have the type IO. I've used IO as an example. We have the return, and we have the bind. So if you have those three things, and then there are also some laws that should be satisfied. The return and bind should behave certain ways when you combine them. If you have all that, you have a monad. But this explanation, which I would rather not have done, <laughs> uh, it, it telling this to someone, it tells them absolutely nothing because there are many things that has this structure and probably you can't think of anything that has this structure. But once you start looking for it, you, you suddenly see that, oh, there are many things that have this structure. But they, they, the operations are so vague and general that there's very little you can say about them. All you can really say is that they obey certain laws uh, because that's what being a monad is. So let me just uh, mention a couple of examples. So IO is one example. Uh, exceptions is something else so then you so you either produce a proper value or you throw some kind of exception that can be turned into a monad so you could use the maybe type for instance and in haskell to represent this um, having state so you have some some piece of state that you want to be able to update that can be turned into a monad um, i think i'll stop there sure well i mean not to like push on this and you don't have to comment on this at all if you don't want to but uh i have heard monads described as programmable semicolons and i don't i don't want it we don't need to yeah does that does that analogy hold for you i i think that's pretty valid so the uh the second operation i mentioned the bind that sort of lets you operate on the value inside the the monad that's sort of what the semicolon is and uh, return is just injecting something there so yeah i mean 
you can say it's a kind of programmable semicolon. It's, it so, gives you some kind of analogy. So in this analogy, is it like, is the idea that the semicolon comes after all of the the uh, code that it operates on and the entire line of code that precedes the semicolon is like the the argument to the semicolon? Yeah, so so this, the thing before the semicolon produces some value. Right. Might be not. That might not be a value that you care about, and that value is then available to the next thing after the semicolon. Ah, so it's not just the line that the semicolon is on; it's all of the lines prior to that line as well. Yeah. So I mean, the analogy is not it's not great. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it, so I would did, I wouldn't stretch it any further than sure. this. Sure. Okay, but is it? Uh, maybe this is like another term you don't want to discuss, but I find this term a little more digestible. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, but are monads closely related to the term currying? No. Oh, not at all. Okay. Not at all. Okay. Well, interesting. All right. Um, okay. Well, so uh, in Haskell, how does the purely functional nature of the language change how data structures are represented you meant you mentioned this a little earlier in terms of the red black trees but if you could if you could expound on this yes so most data structures that people do in uh, imperative languages non-pure languages uh, say say that you have a, a tree you do update in place of the tree so when you insert something you modify the tree so that the new thing is in the tree. This is possible to do in Haskell, but this is not the way it's typically done. Instead, in Haskell, if you have a tree and you insert something, you get the new tree back where the new th thing has been inserted. But you haven't modified the, the original tree. That's still there. That's still intact. So these kind of data structures, uh, they are, they're not as well studied as the, the usual ones. And for a few things, uh, we don't know if there exist things that are of, of the same good complexity as for the ones that you can actually update. Uh, so the, the purity, if you want to do it in a pure way, you never modify anything. You can't modify anything when you do it in a pure way. So you, your your insert or whatever has to return a new data structure, whatever it is. Got it. I understand. Um, how widely used is Haskell in industry? Um, I don't know. Uh, it, there seems to be a f growing number of startups now that I see looking for people with uh, Haskell experience. So I'm, I'm not even sure what kind of, of answer you want to that question. Do you want me to say there are 544 Haskell programmers or it's used in 0.1% no, of all companies. No, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm more curious. Um, I mean, maybe a better question is like, why, you know, or how, how is, so, okay, there's certainly, 
an increasing adoption of functional languages. Um, at least that is my sense. Most of the people I've talked to uh, in this this week on Software Engineering Daily, they say, yeah, it seems like functional programming is having some sort of renaissance. Uh, Haskell is as functional as it gets. So I'm yeah. curious how reflective of that functional growth is um, is Haskell's current and uh, and maybe maybe uh, near term near future usage. Yeah, so I think as you say, functional programming is growing, and if you want to do sort of the ultimate purity and programming and in, still in a practical language, then Haskell is the only alternative. Well, I mean, you can do it in other languages, but it's not enforced like it is in Haskell. So uh, now if, I don't know why functional programming is having a renaissance at the moment, or if sort of the functional programming uh, renaissance pushes Haskell or Haskell pushes functional programming more, or I, I don't know what the dynamic is there. But it's certainly growing. I think if you asked Paul Graham or uh, or even Matthew Flat, uh, the the racket guy, um, they would say that the the traits that are making functional programming appealing right now have been around forever. But it's just the, for some reason it, it hasn't been adopted. Maybe it's. Uh, I don't know. Do you do you think there's any anything to the to the idea that like maybe Ruby or Java, um, particularly Java, maybe even C plus plus, they there's something about the language that makes them easier to communicate business requirements or um, I don't know, like what like for some reason these languages latched on in in corporate America or cor- or corporations across the world. Um, where with Haskell, in order to have the translation layer between the business side and the engineering side, maybe the the uh, the communication would be a little more difficult, or or is that just? I uh, no, I I don't think it's any more difficult okay. communicating mm-hmm. with with Haskell. So I, I was going to say something about the why it, the oh, popularity. Please. Sure. So, um, so I was doing functional programming in the eighties, and in the eighties we said, well. Functional languages and sort of uh, declarative languages in general, they will become popular because it's much easier to do parallelism uh, with them. Because if you don't have side effects, you you can't sort of you don't have a shared memory where you can communicate in strange ways, and so it's easier to to get parallel programs right. And we claimed this in the 80s, and we said it must come soon now when we get parallel computers. But then, of course, uh, Intel and others kept uh, increasing the clock frequency of the chips. So it was still the single CPU computers that reigned for quite a long time. And so functional programming sort of went into a slight hibernation, probably. Um, uh, but now it is again at the point where parallel computers is what's going to that sort of that that is the way computers are going to get faster. You, the, the clock frequency is no longer increasing; hasn't been for a few years, 
And so I think we we might be coming back to these languages that make it easier to program parallel machines. So, so speaking of that, what is the concurrency support within Haskell? Um, so we should distinguish between two things. Haskell, the language as defined in the Haskell report, and then there is the the implementation that everyone uses, which is the Glasgow Haskell compiler. The Haskell, the language as in the report, it doesn't mention concurrency at all, really. I mean, the report is kind of out of date in many, many respects. Whereas uh, the Glasgow Haskell compiler, which everyone uses, has had uh, concurrency support for the last probably 15 years or something like that. So it has very nice uh, concurrency support with it uses uh, green threads so it it has its own implementation of threads in the runtime system so you can have um, millions of threads if you want to which is it's a very nice programming model that you, you don't do callbacks you just have another thread that does something and wait for the result when i talked to joe armstrong who is the creator of Erlang or the original designer yep. of Erlang? He he was pretty. Uh, he felt pretty strongly that Erlang is kind of like the 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 best programming language. Or or, or I mean, he he was he loves Erlang. <laughs> yes. I mean, I, that's why yeah, I guess that's what you would expect from the creator. But um, it's Joe. <laughs> but he, certainly, but he didn't say. I mean. You know, you hear a lot of people when they talk about pro- when they talk about programming languages, when they talk about functional languages, they're like, "Well, Haskell is the be all end all." Um, I, I guess uh, I don't know really know where I'm going with this, but where, where I mean, how do you compare Erlang to Haskell? Maybe that's like a super subtle question that is like a not of interest to like ninety five percent of the audience, but I think it's an interesting question. So, so Erlang had a, a very different goal from the beginning. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I know the guys, I, I know Joe and, and the other people who did the original Erlang before it was Erlang even. And their goal was to program an exchange. They were at the Ericsson, who does uh, lots of phone exchanges. And they looked at different things. They, one of them, they looked at functional programming, and uh, they decided that they wanted something that was more like Prolog. So they did use Prolog, and then they decided that wasn't really what they wanted either. So they turned Prolog kind of into a functional language and a process-oriented language. I mean, it's all about concurrency in Erlang, and I think. And, and another thing was that they they like to uh, handle failure in a good way. I mean, it's all about recovering from failure. These uh, telephone exchanges, you have to, if something goes catastrophically wrong with hardware or software, you want to be able to sort of recover from it. So Erlang was, from the beginning, built to be able to handle failure and recover and restart bits so that and it, of course a telephone exchange is highly concurrent as well so that's from the beginning it was aimed at being a concurrent programming language with good support for uh, error handling and 
only second, I would say, was it a functional language. Mm. They've added more support for that. So, I mean, now I think it's a quite reasonable functional language. Early on, it, it really wasn't. It was a uh, language for concurrency. And so I think Erlang is a fantastic uh, system. I wouldn't say just a programming language, but the whole ecosystem that they have. It's really good for, for the kind of things that people do with Erlang. That involves a lot of concurrency, uh, lots of threads. Uh, what I have trouble with in Erlang is that it's dynamically typed rather than statically typed. Mm. And I've been using uh, statically typed languages for so long now. Uh, I don't think my brain can handle dynamic typing anymore. <laughs> okay, interesting. Um, so what are some benefits of, I mean, so, you know, we talked about Erlang, obviously the benefits of building large scale applications in Erlang are, you know, it simplifies concurrency or manages concurrency for you. What are some of the benefits of building large scale applications in Haskell? So I think the the software reuse you get is a big thing. Mm. With with some thought you can make reusable components that are actually reusable and uh, uh, you you can often this involves making some extra abstraction maybe sort of instead of having a concrete type for something, say, okay, I can leave it open which type I'm going to choose for this particular thing. And so you, you write something without sort of nailing down the uh, the particulars, and then you can reuse this in many different situations. So the master of this is Edward Kmet, who's an interesting guy that I think you should interview sometime. He uh, he really likes to write these libraries that are have fantastically reusable code in them they are really cool great yeah i will definitely look into interviewing him um so software engineering daily did a show about a system called pachyderm which is like a big data system that has a copy on write file system and the future of data persistence seems like it will look increasingly like that copy on write model maybe not you know, universally, obviously, you don't want everything to be copy on write. But, you know, when you have things like data science, you want copies of your data, you want version control for your data. Um, yeah. Because storage is so cheap, and the advantage of version control is so great. Um, and it seems like functional programming um, really fits in well with this, because you have this very uh, defined model of when uh, when things get mutated and generally stuff is, stuff is, uh, immutable. So yeah, it, right. do, do you think there's a, is there an overlap between these, between these two trends? The, yes. I mean, they're, they're both going towards immutability. I mean, an example is, uh, the closure programming language and they have this fantastic da database, Datomic, which, is also based on this that you you don't remove old stuff you just add new stuff and you 
you can always query what was there in the past. You have a, a latest view of it, but you also have the old stuff, which is very much like it is when you have a data structure in uh, in a pure functional language. You you never remove any of the old ones. Well, the garbage collector will remove them when no one lo- no one refers to them anymore. But you don't mutate things. So yes, there are some parallel development there. I don't know if I have anything deep to say how they could be uh, related or what sure. the advantages are. Sure. To, to... No, I, I think I think that's that it was plenty insightful. It's you know sometimes on the show we try to um, just use you know various domains to illustrate broader software trends that might be going on. So um, so Haskell has influenced many other languages. Do any languages stand out to you as particularly influenced by Haskell? No. I mean, all languages are getting Lambda expressions these days. Uh, but I wouldn't say that's a, just Haskell. That's... Uh, all functional languages have that. No, I, I don't. I can't really pick any. I mean, if you if you're talking about mainstream languages, of course there are uh, s- smaller uh, programming languages, such as like Elm you mentioned, that has been influenced heavily by Haskell. But it's all. I mean, you might say it's not really a different programming language; it's more of a dialect of Haskell. So there are some of those that look a lot like Haskell, but on the mainstream ones, I don't think anything is exactly influenced by Haskell. Mm. So when would you choose a language other than Haskell for for a program, for a software project? So if I was doing something uh, like, say, writing uh, some kind of bytecode interpreter, which is something I've done. Um, I want a language where I can control everything myself, every last bit and memory allocation and everything like that to sort of squeeze the last bit of performance out of it. So um, then I write that in C or C++ or something like that, uh, or at least a, the, the uh, subset of C++ that I understand. <laughs> okay. One of your contributions to the Haskell community is the HBC compiler. Can you tell me yeah. about developing that compiler? So in the uh, early to sort of mid-80s, uh, I and another guy, Thomas Jonsson, we did our PhDs at the Chalmers University, and we did it about compiling functional language, uh, well, one particular functional language called Lazy ML, which was a version of the ML language that came out of Edinburgh about with lazy evaluation and static types. So we had this, and then when the, the Haskell effort started, uh, we all agreed that all the people who were involved in the Haskell 
defining Haskell. We all had our own compilers for different languages. We agreed that once Haskell was defined, we would all switch to Haskell. Uh, and um, I think it was in April 1990, I think it was even April 1st, 1990, that the Haskell report came out. And um, so I was hoping to uh, be able to try out Haskell soon after that because they were working on it in Glasgow and I asked them I met them at some conference and uh, they they still did, were still working on their compiler so I decided okay I can't wait any longer I want to try out Haskell I'm going to convert the LML compiler to accept Haskell as well so I started that sometime in August I think of uh, 1990 and worked on it for a couple of months and uh, then the our lazy ml compiler could now compile haskell as well and that was the first uh, publicly available haskell compiler because the glasgow guys were still not done when i was done with that cool um you're also the author of the cayenne programming language why did you create cayenne I was just experimenting a bit with something called uh, pure type systems, which is a uh, it's lambda calculus plus types, and you can pick and choose what you do with these types in many different ways. And the some of the more advanced ones give you what's called dependent types. And so I wanted I just wrote a little sort of toy implementation of this but then of course i wanted to uh, experiment a bit more and so i added more and more features so that it turned into uh, a real programming language and i really wanted to call it curry but uh, that la name was taken so i had to come up with something else actually was my wife who suggested you could pick something else spicy and so it became <laughs> funny and and so so it was really to uh, experiment with the dependent types okay interesting um so are, are there any interesting points of comparison between cayenne and haskell so i um borrowed quite a bit of syntax from from haskell and uh, but then i wanted to simplify certain things uh, and make some things more uniform, so I, I changed some things. I mean, it, it looks a bit like Haskell, and you can basically take Haskell programs and almost mechanically translate them to, to Cayenne. I, I didn't do type classes in Cayenne, so that bit wouldn't work, but everything else would work mm. kind of straight away. But then, of course, you can do more things in Cayenne that you can't do in Haskell. Got it. You currently work at Standard Chartered Bank. Do you use Haskell heavily there? Yes, we do. Uh, we probably have about 20 people who use Haskell full-time. Can you talk about some of the benefits that you get from it? Um, so I think the we get the benefits that uh, we talked about earlier. So we can... The code is reasonably short, which means it's 
probably quicker to produce it uh, and it has fewer defects than uh, in other languages, at least I think so. So I think it's uh, productivity and uh, correctness are the big benefits. Do you have any like trouble hiring people to that can work in Haskell? Because I mean, it seems like it's not super widely uh, people are fluent in it. Um, so far, we have not had any trouble hiring people because there seems to be a lot of people who would love to program in Haskell, but they can't find any Haskell jobs. So I should I I, I should qualify this. So we've been trying to hire people in London and in Singapore. In London, it's easy to find people. In Singapore, it's difficult to find people. Hmm. I see. Uh, in the past, you were a lecturer at the computer science department at Chalmers University of Technology. How did the academic experience compare to your current experience in industry? So in academia, you are in some way much freer. I mean, when you're not teaching, when you're doing research, you can basically do whatever you want. But you have to pull in money. You have to apply for research grants and so on. And the more senior you get, the more of your time you spend on applying for money. And uh, when I say you can do whatever you like, well, that's not quite true because you have to do things that uh, people who hand out money want to see. So it's not really quite whatever you want, uh, actually. So, I mean, in some ways, I, I really liked academia because you, there is more freedom in what you do, of course. But other ways, uh, applying for money and so on, I don't miss that bit at all. <laughs> so uh, let's begin to close off. In what ways do you think Haskell represents the future of software development? So I believe, really believe that uh, strong typing where the type system uh, keeps helps you keep track of things, effects of different kinds, is the way to go. It would probably not look exactly like Haskell in, in uh, 50, say, 50 years' time. Uh, I think we'll come up with some more advanced system by that to do it better by then. But this idea that the types can help you in getting things right, I think is uh, it's just starting to, to catch on. And the people who are not using a type system like Haskell's who are sort of stuck in a type system of Java or C++ or something like that, they don't really appreciate how much the types can help you, I think, because you often get this feeling that types are there to hinder you. They just uh, complain about all kinds of things. But I think, I mean, if you use them right, that's, that's the way forward. And um, then I also think that um, uh, purity is an important thing. So... 
avoid updating things because updating things is bad for parallelism, makes it harder to reason about. So I think purity and strong type systems, that's what Haskell has to, to offer right now and what will be more of in the future. All right. Well, Leonard Augustuson, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily and talking about Haskell. It's been a real pleasure. All right. Thank you for having me.